from the tax side, it could be a one-off opportunity to qualify for the concessions where you wouldn't otherwise be able to, meaning that if you sell in the future, you would have a, a lower tax bill later on. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Tax Talks, update number 19. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When it comes to restructuring, there have been no law changes as such amidst the current crisis. The small business CGT concessions, the 50% CGT discount and the CGT rollovers and exemptions apply as before. The law hasn't changed, but the circumstances have. And so maybe in the past, you didn't qualify for the small business CGT concessions, maybe because your turnover was over 2 million or maybe because the market value of your business and other assets was over 6 million and hence too high. And so while you might not have qualified for the small business CGT concessions before, maybe now in the middle of this crisis, you might. And if you do, you could use the concessions to lock in your capital gains with little or no tax to pay and get a higher cost base. And of course, you know, a higher cost base means a lower capital gain later on and hence less tax to pay. So in this update, let's look at the planning opportunities that come out of this current crisis, the subdued market values and the decimated turnovers. And while turnover is for an entire year and hence might not be low enough yet, the market value is just a point in time, just before the CGT event. And so that market value might be low enough at the moment to qualify for the small business CGT concessions. So it is all about the market value of your assets, especially the market value of your business, because that is usually your main asset in this test. Because as you know, your family home and your super are not included in the maximum net asset value test. And so it all comes down to the value of your business. But how do you determine this value? How can you get below the 6 million mark? Here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney with some insights. There's been less sort of buying and selling activity, but there's been still a reasonable amount of, I guess, what you'd call internal restructuring type activity where, you know, a crisis is a good chance to consider what's my structure like, how am I going to pass assets to my children, how can I possibly, you know, move things around within my group. Yeah, so all those things have come out. And yeah, there is, um, yeah, in, in this sort of, discussion will go through, I guess, how the small business CGT concessions can be used to to facilitate some of those internal restructures. Okay, so it's not so much that at the moment there's a lot of buying and selling, but it's more that business is slow at the moment, hence do all the things that you had intended to do for a long time, including restructuring. Yeah, exactly. And and in the context of market value, there may actually be a window of opportunity to use the small business CGT concessions where they may not otherwise be eligible for them as well. So there is a silver lining to to every cloud. 
Okay, so it's actually possible that a business that was 10, 11, 12 million before and hence well outside of the rim of the uh, small business CGT concessions, but now with no sales, it might be possible that you are below 6 million. Yeah, exactly. So so when you're considering an internal restructure and using the small business CGT concessions, you've got a few market values to consider. One is under the $6 million maximum net asset value test, where just before the CGT event, you must have net assets of no more than $6 million. And then the second point it's relevant to is, well, what's the actual capital gain that's being triggered as a result of doing this internal restructure? Because in an internal restructure context, you're usually going to have the market value substitution rule apply, which says that your capital proceeds are going to be your market value. Both the concept of just market value and also for the $6 million net asset value test and also for the $2 million turnover test, all those concepts may be affected by a current economic situation, particularly the $6 million net asset value test. Now, I'll preface what I'm saying with that I'm not a professional valuer, but there is some interesting case law that I was able to dig up talking about market value in the context of the Great Depression in the 1930s and also in the context of World War II and cases in both eras which acknowledge that the uncertainty of the time definitely has an impact on market value. And of course, valuers will sort of tell you the same thing in relation to what's a I don't know, an appropriate multiple or what sort of earnings can be maintained. But um, there is actually case law on the point as well, confirming that. The uh, small business turnover test, if we were selling now, then it would be the uh, 2019 slash 20 financial year, correct? For this small business turnover test, there's three alternative tests that may apply in any situation. The first is if your turnover for the last financial year was $2 million or less. And then the alternatives are that your turnover for the current year is $2 million or less. And there's also one about projected turnover for the current year, which essentially is that if your projected turnover is below $2 million and you meet some other additional criteria, you can qualify that way as well. So in other words, it's, this, it's the current year in which you're doing the restructure and also last year. So that means if the uh, crisis continues much longer, which of course we don't want to, but assuming it continues much longer, then there is a chance that businesses that didn't qualify for the small business CGT concessions before because their turnover was far too high now might qualify because business is still really slow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, doing any of this and sort of restructuring using the concessions, especially in an internal context, you should always get a valuation from a professional valuer anyway, because you sort of want to be able to evidence and back up whatever position you're claiming. But yeah, it is a window of opportunity that you may qualify, whereas in a normal situation, you, you potentially wouldn't. So yeah, definitely something to consider there. The concept of market value is really important for a number of things. First being the maximum net asset value test. So which that, that requires that the entity that's disposing of CGT assets needs to, just before the CGT event, it needs to have assets with a net value that doesn't exceed $6 million, including connected entities and, and affiliates and so forth. 
and also in determining capital proceeds because um, in the internal restructure context, that will usually be as a result of the market value substitution rule. Putting the small business turnover test aside, now focusing on the um, maximum net asset value test, that can be a big door into the small business CGT concessions because, for example, I can imagine the market value of restaurants, for example, at the moment is is severely compromised, even if they still make reasonable turnovers, takeaway, etc. So, and because the market value is only assessed at one point in time, because just before the CGT event, and right now, this market value is compromised, and hence there is a door. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to think about on the other end as well, if you're in a business that's experiencing a surge in turnover that might not be sustainable in the long term, you can flip it around and think about it that way as well. Because then you get a higher cost base. Yeah, yeah. It um, it, it would go to your, your cost base, um, the capital gain that's been triggered and so forth. But you're right. It's a point in time test. It's the market value Particularly under the $6 million net asset value test, it's a, it's a point in time test that requires an assessment just before the CGT event. And there's been a couple of cases in the last two years or so which, which explore what, what that really means, um, the market value just before the CGT event. The cases are in the context of third-party sales, but there is also some principles that are still relevant to not only third-party sales, but also in internal restructures. So the starting point is that um, the term market value is not defined in the Act or not relevantly defined in the Act and and just takes its sort of ordinary meaning. We know from the, the seminal high court case called Spencer's case then that it's essentially a test between a willing but not anxious buyer and a willing but not anxious seller. So essentially, hypothetically, Two people come together, there's an asset, no one really cares whether it's going to be sold or not. They're not, you know, they're not anxious to sell or anxious to buy and they know all conditions about the market. What would they agree is a fair price? Somewhat of an artificial sort of uh, test, but that's the, that's the sort of seminal case on what, on what market value is. In the current crisis, is it possible to justify that a seller would be more than not desperate? Well, that's exactly right. That's the question. And, and some of these cases argue things around market value by saying, well, I sold this asset for a certain price, but this, the buyer was really anxious to buy it. So they paid an overinflated price. Conversely, an argument could be made that the seller who was part of a fire sale and I just accepted a really low price because I just wanted to get it out the door. Whereas might be worth actually more than that. Yes, but actually I'm shooting myself into the foot because of course we are talking about restructuring where you basically don't sell to a third party. You just, you know, we are just restructuring and then of course desperation on either side doesn't really come into it because yeah. whatever the desperation is on one side will be the same on the other side. Well, that's true in the context that the internal restructure will be sort of related parties. However, there, there could be other things that are relevant. And, and for example, it could be that the tax, uh, one of the parties has received previous offers to sell, even though that those sales didn't go through. Or it could be that a, an actual third party sale takes place sometime after the restructure. 
notwithstanding that that sort of wasn't contemplated at the time of the internal restructure. But the principles that I'm going to go through, you can still, they still do have relevance even to an internal restructure as well. Now's a good time to reassess. Yeah. And if you now fit under the 6 million maximum net asset value test when you didn't before, if your turnover dropped, although the turnover drop, I think, is more difficult because it's over an entire year. So I think it's more the it's more the asset test that will yeah. open the door for you. So if now the value has dropped momentarily and you fit underneath the 6 million bar, then this is a great opportunity to restructure thanks to COVID-19. Yeah, I agree with that. And so then, of course, for this COVID-19 restructuring, then, of course, the market value is is everything. You know, how do you come to the market value and justify something that is below six million? A market value really is everything. And again, while, while I'm not a valuer, I think it's worthwhile explaining what's happened in relation to the concepts of market value and the small business CGT concessions yes. over the last two years or so. Yes, I agree. And sorry, can I just butt in one more thing? And that is, if your cost base is more than $6 million then beforehand, then you don't really need to worry about it because you would just decrease your cost base now and there's no point to that. But if your cost base is significantly below $6 million and you could increase it through this restructuring, then it's worth looking into. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I mean, if you're not going to make a capital gain anyway, that's not really an issue. But um, most of the time, businesses start from sort of scratch with nominal cost base and potentially some you know debt funding and they don't have any cost base in the in the in the business assets or minimal anyway in the shares and things like that that's a very good point when you look at real estate for example there's always a, a significant cost base but you're right with the business the cost base unless you bought the business but when yep. you started it yourself the cost base is usually close to nil so your capital gain is whatever the business is worth yeah absolutely definitely in the case of shares and goodwill potentially intellectual property and things like that that can often have very very low cost bases unless of course the business has been bought from someone else so the two cases that I wanted to go through was Miley, the case of Miley and the case of Hooky. Both cases sort of suggest that the sort of the seminal quote from Spencer's case may not be, you know, the ending point when assessing market value, particularly in the context of the concessions. In Miley's case, we had three equal shareholders. Actually, Andrew, can we just yep. very quickly, have you already discussed the Spencer case just now? And I yeah, just have yeah. a lapse of memory. Yeah, that was just a willing but not anxious buyer. Ah, I see. Okay, that's yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the case of Miley, we had three equal shareholders. One of them name was Mr. Miley. And the three equal shareholders sold their shares in a company to an arm's length purchaser. All three shareholders sold their shares together. And under the sale contract, the purchaser paid $17.7 million for those shares. And those uh, that sale proceed was divided between each of the three shareholders. So each of them was basically just below $6 million. Well, each of them received, yeah, $5.9 million from their shares. So the central issue was, in this case, was whether Mr. Miley would satisfy the maximum net asset value test. Now, Mr. Miley did have some other assets, which would have been included in his maximum net asset value test. As a result of those, if it was accepted that the market value of his shares was 5.9 million, 
then he would fail the $6 million net asset value test because he had other assets which would have tipped him over. Just very quickly, we didn't have to consider the full $17 million because Mr. Marley was only had a third. If he had 51%, or I think even if he had more than 40%, correct, then we would have had to consider the entire $17 million. But because he had less than the threshold, we only had to look at his share. Yeah, I should add that this was, you're correct, and this case was decided under the previous rules before the 2018 amendments. So before those, you only needed to, if someone held between 20 and 40% of a company, you only need to assess their share of it, not the entire company. The way the rules work now is that you would need to look at the company as a whole. So if this situation was replicated now, they would have other problems, which should mean that uh, we wouldn't even be talking about this. But the, the, the central issue in the case was whether what was the market value of Mr. Miley's shares. The maximum net asset value test requires you to test the market value of those shares just before the CGT event, the CGT event in this case being the contract of sale. So you might think, well, okay, he sold it for $5.9 million, and surely that's the market value, right? On first instance in the AAT, Mr. Miley brought expert evidence that the market value of his shares wasn't $5.9 million. It was actually quite a lot less than that. And the reason that it should be less than that is because it's a minority shareholding in a private company. So one of the principles of valuation is that you'd usually apply a discount to a minority shareholding. So take a simple example. If you've got a company with $10 million of assets, and you're you're buying a tenth of the shares, then the value of that should be less than one tenth of the assets because with only 10%, you can't control the company and you've got to sort of have an adjustment for that. And the other two shareholders, were they related? No, they were unrelated. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so, they were, so it was basically three minority shareholders. Essentially, it was three minority shareholders. And Mr. Miley said, well, my, the market value of my shares just before the sale was less than $5.9 million because if you were to buy just my shares, someone wouldn't have paid that full amount, that full amount of $5.9 million. Yeah, they only paid $17 million because the entire company was sold. Yeah, correct, correct. That's definitely the case. So what Mr. Miley said is, well, we should apply this test from Spencer's case, which says it's a willing but not anxious buyer and a willing but not anxious seller. And in that sort of hypothetical market, we should exclude what actually happened, the, the $17.7 million sale, because that's just a, that's someone buying 100%, not just my shares. And we should just look at, well, what would someone be willing to pay for my minority shareholding? And also because the test includes the words just before, we need to look at market value without reference to the actual sale that happened because the words say market value just before the CGT event. Now, it was successful in the AAT, but unfortunately in the federal court, these arguments were rejected. And what the court said was essentially that well, the fact that there was someone who actually was really ready and willing to purchase 100% of the shares, including the minority shareholding, that was just the reality of the market. And it would be artificial to exclude that, despite the fact that the test says you need to determine the market value just before the CGT event. Just, before, just because it says just before the CGT event doesn't mean you can't just disregard what happened literally seconds after that moment in time. So unfortunately, Mr. Miley's lost for that reason. And they said that, well, 
the market value was 5.9 million. It wasn't, there wasn't a discount to be applied. It wasn't reasonable to apply that discount. And so that stands now, there is no appeal. It's not possible to go to a higher. It, it would have been possible at the time. However, um, he didn't. He didn't. As a postscript to this case, Mr. Miley also made a separate argument that because he entered into a restraint of trade as a result of signing the contract, some of the purchase price should be attributable to the restraint of trade rather than the shares themselves. So again, he was trying to say, well, I got 5.9 million, but um, some of that should have been for the the non-compete clause and you know some of it should be for the shares and again that argument wasn't successful so so i mean what what mr miley was trying to argue was that just before the cgt event the restraint of trade didn't exist and if i'm getting 5.9 million under the contract some of that should be attributable to the restraint of trade because well that didn't exist just before you've got to essentially net off from the value of the shares you can't just take 5.9 as the value of the shares you have to do an adjustment, essentially, because there was a restraint of trade. Restraint of trade is basically earned over the period, isn't it? If the restraint of trade, for example, is for five years, and let's say it's a million, then you basically earn 200,000 every year that you've restrained from trading. Yeah, quite possibly. It could also be a CGT event, separate CGT event under being the creation of a, of a right under CGT event D1, or it could just be straight income. But I think the reason that he was making the argument was even if there's some tax consequences on the restraint, by, by getting the small business concessions, he would have been better off mm. overall. But the court said in that follow-up case that, look, it's a bit artificial to split up. You, you know, a- Anyone who's selling a business will, will always put restraints of trade in. And it's a bit artificial to try to slice up the purchase price in that sort of way, particularly when the documents itself didn't do that either. So, yes, and the restraints of trade, of course, is not an earnout arrangement. So, so, for example, when you buy an accounting practice and you have an earnout arrangement, it kind of depends how many clients stay, etc. But that, of course, is very different to the restraints of trade. Yeah, absolutely. So it's yeah, very different to an earnout arrangement, which has got a complete separate uh, set of rules. But um, yeah, for a restraint of trade, it's not often that you would be paid something separately for the for the okay. restraint. It would just be sort of part and parcel of the deal, really. You know, you're selling an accounting business. There usually be some sort of restraint put on you to not sort of poach those clients type thing. The general rule is a restraint of trade. It's just part of the um, asset test. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, you know, it's, of the market value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very hard to make these sort of crafty arguments that I sold something for a certain amount, but the market value should be much less than what it was sold for. So in a third-party sale context, it's, it's clear that it's very hard to make those arguments. And in an internal restructure context, it's relevant for other things like any offers that have been received or a sale that's happened shortly after an internal restructure has happened. I think you do need to consider those sort of subsequent events or potential you know, offers that didn't proceed as, as part of um, assessing the market value. The other related case was Hookie's case, which was an AAT decision. And in that case, the taxpayer sold some child learning centers. The taxpayer argued that the purchase price they obtained was significantly higher than the actual market value of the assets. I'm sure the seller was pleased to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, they said that, look, the seller was uh, 
Um, yeah, very anxious. Well, yes, <laughs> they didn't say that. They may have thought that, but um, they said that, well, the buyer was undergoing a bit of a strategic acquisition and they were really desperate to get their hands on these particular child learning centers. Was it ABC Learning? You know, the <laughs> one from that went bankrupt? Yeah, yeah, it was from 2008. So it could have been. It's a good question. Well, again, the taxpayer applied this um, maxim from the Spencer's case that, well, this wasn't a willing but not anxious buyer. They were very anxious and therefore what was it, what the assets were sold for were not its market value. Unfortunately for the taxpayer, they, they weren't able to lead enough evidence. And, and of course, as we know, in the context of um, challenging a, a ATO decision in either the AAT or the federal court, the taxpayer bears the onus of proof. So if the ATO says the market value is $7 million, then it's on the taxpayer to you know, positively disprove that through leading evidence. Problem was the taxpayer wasn't able to lead enough evidence to say why that market value should be less than what the sale price was. So that basically means the root of sum is whatever the price is, that is the market value, unless the buyer and the seller don't trade at arm's length. Absolutely. Yeah. So the AAT said that the prima facie position is that the market value is the agreed negotiation negotiated price. And that that position can only be displaced where it can be established that the purchaser was wholly erroneous and affected by error. So basically where there was a big mistake and someone's completely misguided, they thought they were buying a Ferrari, but they ended up getting a Toyota, you know, something along those lines. It's very, very hard to go away from what the purchase price was in terms of working out market value. And that very rarely happens anyway. And if it happens, then the buyer, of course, would also try to rescind from the contract that he was misled, et cetera. So that, that basically means it's it's the purchase price. Market value is the purchase price unless there is trading that is not at arm's length. Yeah, almost every time the sale price is going to be market value unless you have a very unusual case and some very unique circumstances because there's been a number of, as you can see from Miley and Hookie's case, there's been a couple of taxpayers that have tried the argument and, and haven't succeeded with it. And then in these cases, they went to the AAT. Do you know if they had legal representation or if they represented themselves? Good question. I haven't got the, the actual printouts of the cases handy. I would have suspected, well, for the for the federal court decision, which is the Miley decision, they, they would have, have to. I would suspect that also in the AAT, they would have had that. Yeah, and I'm not sure regarding the hooky case, but I, I would have suspected that they would have been represented. But then that is their only cost or do they also so they have to bear the cost since they lost they they have to bear the tax liability and then they have to bear the um, lawyers bills but do they also have to pay for the other side legal so for the AAT case for the hooky yeah. case no because well unless there's very unusual circumstances the rule is that each party just bears their own costs at the but, AAT yeah but with the federal court the usual flow of events is that the cost follows the event. So if you win, you get your costs paid by the other side and vice versa. It's, it's, usually, it's usually not that they get 100% of your costs. It's, it's done on a sort of scale and the sort of rule of thumb is you get about 
two thirds, mm. I believe. Yeah. But so that means Mr. Miley was a lot worse off than if he had just copped the bill. Yes. Because now he had to pay his own lawyers and he had to pay the ATO's legal yep. representation. Yep. Yep. So that Correct. would have cost him dearly. Yeah, but it would have been um, an expensive exercise because there was. Um, There was at least three cases. <laughs> so, yes, you're right. Moral of the story is basically market value is whatever the buyer agrees to buy it for and the seller agrees to sell it for. That is yeah. the market value as long as you trade at arm's length. But now, of course, we come to restructuring. If you use this COVID-19 crisis to restructure now to get a higher cost base for when one day you actually sell to a third party, if you restructure, then we now need to really yeah yeah well you're quite right it's, really... it's the test is market value it's willing but not anxious buyer and seller but the problem is in a sort of a COVID-19 situation there's not a lot of transactions happening and to the extent transactions are happening some of them will be affected by things that are that are outside the norm so to speak so It can make it really difficult to work out what actually market value is, but I, th I think we can make the comment that there may be a large window of opportunity for, for businesses that have suffered financially. They may actually be able to qualify for the concessions, whereas in normal situations, they would not. So we talked a bit about market value. It's relevant for the qualification. It's relevant to working out the capital gain. And in the context of COVID-19, businesses market value and the market value of assets may have been dramatically affected. So now could be a potentially a really good time to consider, have I been affected? Can I qualify for the concessions? Is there a restructure that I've been thinking about doing? And if so, maybe now is a good time to start um, progressing that. And when doing these restructures, there's a number of drivers. Some of them could be tax. Some of them could be other reasons like estate planning. But from the tax side, it could be a one-off opportunity to qualify for the concessions where you wouldn't otherwise be able to, meaning that if you sell in the future, you would have a, a lower tax bill later on. So they can be really valuable concessions in achieving non-tax objectives, and they can provide really good tax benefits as well. Welcome back. So if your business has a low cost base and you have a low cost base, if you started your business yourself or if you bought it a long time ago. So if your business has a low cost base and before the crisis, the market value was beyond six million or your turnover was beyond two million. If that was the case, have another look, check your projected turnover and your business market value now. Maybe because of COVID-19, you got below the thresholds now and qualify. And so you could restructure and get the cost base closer to 6 million, which means you would have a lower capital gain later on when you do so. But there are four things to consider. The first one is to keep an eye on the 15-year exemption, which you might lose if you restructure now rather than wait. But If your assets are beyond 6 million later on, then you don't get any exemption at all. So better to get something now than nothing later on. The second thing is to first calculate the exemptions and what a possible tax liability might be and to make sure your cash flow can handle any resulting tax bill, no matter how small. Because it might be great to increase your cost base from nil to close to 6 million and it might save you a lot of tax later on. But 
if your cash flow can't handle this extra tax bill right now, no matter how little this extra tax bill might be, if your cash flow can't take this hit, then it doesn't make any sense. The third point is just an acknowledgement that this is a nice problem to have. Worrying about cost basis, of course, means that you're doing relatively well. Because if you're fighting for survival at the moment, then of course, ignore all this. It doesn't matter at all. Your business CGD cost base is the least of your problem. And the fourth point is, of course, never do anything purely for tax reasons. Always have another reason up your sleeve. We will do another update on Monday, update number 20, where we will go through the next round of JobKeeper rules that will come in September when the current round comes to an end. The actual legislation is not out yet, but let's go through the changes as announced so far. Thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you on Monday. Monday.